Uh, think of the Proverbs, and think of a proverb you think is one of the most famous Proverbs in the Bible. I heard it. Somebody under their breath. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your what? And do not lean on your... You're doing good. This is pretty good. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he'll do what? Direct your path. So make your path straight. Now, we, we quoted that, but think about it. Why do we have to be instructed to trust in the Lord with all our heart? Well, we have to be instructed to do that, to trust in the Lord with all your heart. And as I sat and I thought about that, I thought, you know what? I think oftentimes we give God lip service. We, we tell God, God, I trust you. But then we run out and go figure it out on our own. We try to accomplish it on our own, although all the while saying, God, I trust you to do this in my life. And what is the end result oftentimes? Failure. Failure after failure. When we do things our own way, according to our own understanding, it's a recipe for destruction. And it's a recipe that leads to failure after failure after failure. To trust in God with all of your heart means there is no plan B. It means you're all in. All of you. This morning we're looking at the second part of a sermon entitled Overcoming Failure. This is part two this morning. And I'm looking around, I don't know all of you. I know some of you, and I know myself. And have we failed? And do we continue to fail? There are times often that we fail over and over again. And this morning, I want you to be encouraged as we look to the scriptures this morning of how to overcome failure. So if you have your Bibles this morning, we're closing up the Gospel of John. We've been there for about a year and a half now. We're in John chapter 21, almost finished with this Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up there. John chapter 21. This morning, we're simply looking at verses 15 through 19. Let me put it in context for you. Basically, at the previous chapter, chapter 20, John has basically concluded his gospel. He said, this is the reason that I wrote this, that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. The whole reason he wrote it. And then now in chapter 21, he gives us an epilogue, like a little more information, like an extra nugget for us to chew on. So the scene starts out, if you weren't with us last week, there are disciples, they're in Galilee, and Peter decides, hey, I'm going to go fishing. And six other of the disciples decide they're going to go with them. Now, we know that three of them were professional fishermen, and they go out onto the Sea of Galilee, and they fish and tarry all night. They work all night long. And for those of you familiar with the story or here last week, how much did they catch? Nothing. All night long, and they caught nothing. And then as the morning breaks, they hear a voice from the shoreline, about 100 yards off, the scripture tells us. And the voice says, children, do you have any fish? Oh, like rubbing it in, right? We've toiled all night. We have nothing. To which they respond, no. And the voice comes back again and says, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Now, they didn't even question the voice. They did as the voice had said. They cast the net over. And do you remember the result? A lot of fish. So many fish, they could not haul it into the boat. And right when John, the gospel writer, sees that, 
he says to Peter, it is the Lord. Peter then grabs his outer garment, throws it on, jumps into the Sea of Galilee, and starts wading and swimming to get to Jesus on the shoreline. We then read in John chapter 21 that the rest of the disciples finally get there rowing up on shore, dragging all these fish, and there on the shore is Jesus, and there is a charcoal fire there waiting for them with fish on it. Now, if you were here last week, you heard me say that charcoal fire only appears one other place in Scripture. Remember where, where it appears? John is intentionally drawing our attention to the charcoal fire because the last time we saw it, it was the night Jesus was betrayed. Outside of the high priest's quarters is a charcoal fire, and guess who's standing by it? And it is there that Peter denies the Lord three times. John now sets up this picture in John chapter 21 and reminds us of the last time there was a charcoal fire. Now this time there being a charcoal fire. We're going to see overcoming failures for Peter. We're going to see this whole thing resolved and restored for Peter. Now, that night by the first charcoal fire, you've got to remember what preceded that right before the betrayal of Jesus. It was what we often refer to as the Last Supper. And Jesus addressed Peter at that supper. In Luke chapter 22, I'm going to read from verses 31 through 34, Jesus addresses Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Listen to what Jesus said. He says, but I have prayed for you that your faith might not fail. And says, when you, and Jesus said, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now listen to what Peter says. Peter turns to Jesus and says, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. What happened to Peter? Peter was so confident that he wouldn't deny the Lord. He was so sure of these things that I will go with you even to death. But Peter fell into the trap of self-sufficiency. He had confidence in himself, confidence that he would never fall. How about us? That thought ever crossed our mind? I've got this. I'll never fall. I'll never fail. Or maybe it's just the opposite. We feel we always fail. We always fall. Peter is telling Jesus, I'm ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. And that charcoal fire in that picture is where he went, and he denied the Lord three times. He failed. He failed miserably. He failed over and over and over again. He denied his Lord three times. The one he boldly confessed I will lay down my life for you. Peter has failed. Do you know that some of the greatest believers fail? I want you to think about it. Just think from Scripture. Noah, guess what? Failed. Abraham, failed. Who else do we have? Moses, failed. David, failed. Solomon, failed. And I can go on and on down the list. And guess what? If you're a believer here today, both you and I 
we fail too. No matter how great a person is, he may fail. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Here's the good news. God's grace. That there is forgiveness evermore. That he will restore those who are repentant. And so here we have in chapter 21, we have Peter, an image of Peter, of how he's going to overcome this horrible failure in his life. How's he going to overcome it? Look at your scripture with me in John chapter 21, verses 15 through 19. We read, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Lord, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, for many of us, it's a very familiar part of Scripture. And we've probably heard many sermons on this passage, this threefold questioning of, that Jesus gave to Peter. And for many of you, you've heard the preacher or the teacher tell you that it's very important for you to understand the Greek, to understand what words are being used for the term love. Have you heard this? Is this familiar to you? Typically, this is how it's taught. But they say the two different words, agapao, which is, we say agape, and phileo, two different ones. And we describe the difference between those two terms in the Greek. And we say that it makes all the difference of what Jesus is saying here. And it would define agape being the highest form of love, a selfless, Christ-like love. It's, a, it's only in relationship to God, type of love that it is. And we would say that phileo is more like a brotherly love like a human love, expressing itself in friendship. For those of you that have been in church for a while, I'm sure you've heard this teaching. So they would say in this sermon that it runs down like this. It depends on that original Greek word. Stick with me. They would say, Jesus asked Peter, do you agape me? And Peter responds, you know I phileo you. So with the same general understanding of what agape and phileo is, Jesus asks again, do you agape me? And Peter responds again, you know I phileo you. So then a third time Jesus asks, do you phileo me? And Jesus says, you know all things. Of course you know that I phileo you. And typically the sermon you have heard says, this is what has happened. That Jesus changed the word from saying it's a, an agape, a godlike love, to just a human love. And that's what caused Peter to break down into grief. If that's the case, it preaches a great sermon. But is that really what's going on in this passage? Is it really important for us to understand the Greek 
to understand what's going on here. I mean, would God require us in an English culture to be scholars in Greek to understand his word here? Is it possible something else is going on in the text? Is it possible something that all of us can discern together from the text? Absolutely. So is it required for you to know Greek? Here's the short answer. No. It's not required. So this morning we're going to look at this. Now I know some of you have been through where you've gone, well, no, agape is this kind of love, and phileo is this kind of love, and don't tell me otherwise, I'm going to walk out. I'm going to let you test it with your own Bible in your own lap. Ready? If you have a Bible in your lap, please turn to John 3.16. Okay, some of you have devices. If you have a device in your hand, please click to John 3.16. So here's the test. Are we looking for the word love, which is the Greek word agape, which would mean a selfless, godlike love? Or is it phileo, which is more of a brotherly love, a human expression of friendship? Now, for me, this came when I was in Germany as a missionary in 2008. One of the other missionaries turned to me and said, hey, you heard about the agape and phileo? And I'm like, yeah, of course. I said, you ever search the scripture to see what words used? And I go... Not necessarily, I just heard it taught. So he did this with me. Turn to the scriptures and figure out what word it is. So you're at John 3.16, one of the most famous verses in the Bible. For God so loved, there's the word, loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So my question to you is, what word is used there? Is it agape or is it phileo? Most of you say it's a godlike love, it's agape. Guess what? You're right. Good job. Cool. All right. Three verses later, John 3, verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. Which word do you think that is in the Greek? You think it's a godlike love? You say it should be more of the phileo? Some of you already know. You're like, he's doing it to us. That is agape as well. So there's another agape. Uh, in the same chapter, John chapter 3, verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. What word do you think that is? That is agape. But I want you to hold your space there. Actually, just flip over to John chapter 5. You don't have to hold your space. Turn to, turn to John chapter 5. Verse 20, we see the same exact thing written again. John 5, 20. The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. In John chapter 3, verse 35, it was agape, and guess what it is here? Not agape. It's phileo. Words are used synonymously. Other words for love. Some of you are like, I don't like this teaching, I'm leaving. All right, let's keep going, stick with your Bible, test all things. John chapter 11. John chapter 11. This has to do with Lazarus. Remember when Lazarus got sick before he died? And we see in John chapter 11, verse 3, Lazarus' sisters come to Jesus, and they say to him, Lord, he whom you love is ill. What kind of love do you think they use in the Greek? This is phileo. Some of you are like, yes, I got it right. Two verses later. John chapter 11, verse 5. 
Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. What kind of love do we have here? Yeah, some of you are scared to answer, right? This one is agape. This one's agape. Words used synonymously for style in the writing. John chapter 13. John chapter 13. Hey, this is kind of fun. John chapter 13, verse 23. We read, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, this is how John kept referring to himself throughout this gospel, is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Whom Jesus loved, he was reclined at the table at Jesus' side. What kind of love do you think, or what word do you think is used here? It is agape. Okay, now I want you to jump to John chapter 20, the next time we see the one whom Jesus loved. John chapter 20. Verse 2. So she ran, this is Mary, and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. The same term again. We just saw in John chapter 13 the word agape was used. Guess what's used here in John chapter 20? What? We're catching on. We're catching on. Now, I don't say all that to burst your bubble. I don't say all that to kill all the things you've known and all the things you've taught. And I taught this for many years as well because it's what I was taught. It wasn't until someone sat down with me and said, just look at the scripture, what word is used? And this study goes on and on. If you go to the Subduagent, the, the Greek Old Testament, you see the word agape? This is in some ways that's very, very bad. Like rape, incest, things like that. So first thing I need to do is purge this idea from John chapter 21. Because I know that you've heard sermons on it. And I know you're already like, I know what this means. Let's just take it right back in context. Which, by the way, talking about the agape phileo, some of you might say, well, it was just John that used synonymously. For kicks, let's do 2 Timothy 4.10. I'll read it to you. Paul writes, for Demas, in love of this present world, has deserted me. Guess what type of love he's speaking of? The love of this world. It is agape. Peter, talking about false prophets in 2 Peter 2, 14 and 15, says they love gain and wrongdoing. He uses the word agape. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord comes. That's phileo. What I'm just trying to point out to you is all the stuff that you've been taught about that, let's throw that aside for a second so we can look at the text together this morning and see what is going on in this text. There's definitely clear meaning in our text this morning. As a matter of fact, talking about style, John uses three other pairs of synonyms throughout this little short passage. He talks about sheep and lambs. He uses them synonymously. He talks about feeding or shepherding or tending. Those words are used synonymously. He talks about in verse 17, Lord, you know, that word know he uses twice, two different words that he uses synonymously. So it's a stylistic thing that he's using throughout this entire passage. So, is that straightened out? Can we continue? Can we get to the sermon now? Throwing that all away? Now we can get back to this text, look at it. What is going on? Jesus, if you look in John chapter 21, verse 15, I know you had you flipping all around. Get to our text this morning. John chapter 21, verse 15. Jesus starts off by addressing Peter 
as Simon, son of Jonas. This is interesting. Jesus hadn't called him this, so they called him to come and follow him. He's calling him like by his first name. And I know growing up when my mom said Robert Lawrence Jewett, See what he says about to be said. Jesus is getting his attention. He is about to tell him something seriously, something to be taken very seriously. Peter, do I have your undivided attention? Or Peter, a word. Jesus is drawing his attention. Remember, there are seven disciples there. Jesus is focused on Peter. This is an interaction for Peter. Peter, who has denied him three times, Peter, who was nowhere to be found as Christ hung on the cross. Peter, who confessed and said, hey, I will die with you. Peter has failed. And now Jesus is going to address him. Verse 15, Jesus says, do you love me more than these? More than these. Do you remember what caused Peter to fail? His confidence in himself, his self-sufficiency. I got this. I will never fall. I will never fail. Interesting enough, if you recall at the Lord's Supper, Matthew chapter 26, verses 33 and 35, Peter says to Jesus, though they all fall away because of you, I'll never fall away. He says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. So what's he saying about the other disciples? Their faith is less, right? got way greater faith. I've got way greater love. Nothing's going to cause me to fail. And so Jesus says, look, do you love me more than them? He's bringing this into question. What do we know about pride? Pride comes before a fall, and great is that fall. So Peter, Jesus is asking, do you love me more than these disciples? And Peter responds, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Now, this would not be the same as a husband talking to a wife saying, well, you know that I love you. He's talking about the omniscience of Christ, that he is all-knowing. You know all things. Peter's confesses to him before that you know all things. So he's saying, of course you know that I love you. You know all things. But what was his first answer? It was, yes, Lord. What did Jesus ask him? Do you love me more than these? Interesting. So there's still some pomp, still some self-confidence in him. He still thinks, I got this. I got more than them. He's positive that his love is greater than the other disciples. And Jesus doesn't address that at first. He says, feed my lambs. Now, for those of you not familiar with Scripture, he's not talking about actual animals. He's talking about believers, God's people. So then Jesus asks, look at verse 16, again he asks Peter, he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him again, tend my sheep. Jesus is saying, look, forget about who's going to be the greatest. Forget about that nonsense. Forget about who loves me the most. Peter, do you love me? Remember, Jesus talking about his upcoming death at the Lord's Supper. Do you know what the disciples were doing? They're fighting over who's going to be the greatest. He's telling them, I'm about to die. And these men, puffed up, 
are talking about who's going to be the greatest. Jesus is now having a one-on-one conversation. Do you love me? Do you love me? He says, tend my sheep. He's getting serious. He's asking now twice the same thing to affirm his love. And twice he's commanded that he takes care of the flock of God. Look with me in verse 17. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now this third time that Jesus asked him, it struck a nerve. You see that Peter was grieved. You see, Peter denied Christ three times. And something wrong on this third time that, wait, I blew it, and I blew it, and I blew it. And now Jesus gave me the opportunity to affirm my love, affirm my love, affirm my love. He is reminded of his failure. Now, I'll tell you this, for most of us, we don't like to look at failure. Matter of fact, we like to sweep it under the carpet and just press on. Let's just keep going. But it was important for Peter to see this because it snapped his confidence in himself. It showed him who he truly is, that he had failed miserably. This three times question of Jesus pointed it out to him clearly. Three consecutive failures, three consecutive times to be publicly restored to Jesus. So in order for Peter to overcome his failure, he had to stare at it straight in the face. Most of us don't like that. To stare at it straight in the face. It couldn't just be swept underneath anything. It had to be brought to the light. My question is, why? What was Peter dealing with? What caused him to fail? Pride. Staring at failure does what to somebody? Should humble you. Should humble you. That I don't have this. I don't, I can't say I've got this. I'll never fail. Instead, he's looking at it. And it should draw him to repentance. It should draw him to turning to Christ, to being completely restored to Jesus. Do you know that you cannot repent of sin that you have not confessed? You can't repent of sin that you're not even aware of. That you're Look, the word confession just means agreeing with God that it's sin. It's an agreement with God. But when I can agree with God that that's sin, now I can turn away and tur- turn away from it and turn to Christ. But if I don't know what it is, what am I repenting from? What am I turning from? I need to know what it is. Peter saw it. He saw his big failure right before him. But the point of it being in front of his face was not to get him to dwell on it. Do you know you can become prideful just dwelling on yourself? Do you know the people who walk around the woe is me, I always fail? I like to say they kick that proverbial little pebble around like, woe is me, I'm always failing. That is not the point here. It's not to put it in front of you and cause you to dwell on yourself. It's to put it in front of you and to cause you to dwell on Jesus. To change your focus. You see, it's not Peter's performance that sustains him. It's Christ's faithfulness that sustains him. Remember Jesus said, but I'm praying for you that your faith may not fail. That's pretty crazy. It is Christ that holds him fast. Not his self-confidence, not his ability, not any of that. It's Christ. 
But now Jesus says, look, you are now to take your eyes off yourself and you're to serve others. Your life's to be different. You're to care for God's people. Jesus was telling Peter, you're no longer going to be concerned about your own well-being. You're going to be concerned about the flock of God. You're going to care for them. You're going to serve them. You're going to nurture them. You're going to take your eyes off of yourself, and you're going to demonstrate my love to my sheep. This is the command he gave them. It wasn't about Peter becoming less. It was about Peter becoming nothing. You know, the Apostle Paul understood this. In Acts chapter 20, verse 24, Paul says, But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's amazing for a man who once went and pulled Christians out of their homes, who once voted for them to be murdered for their faith, that now he says, my life has changed. Something has happened. Complete transformation. Jesus tells Peter, Peter, it's no longer about you. Give up your confidence in yourself. Fix your eyes upon me. Demonstrate your love for me. Look back in your text at John chapter 21, verses 18 and 19. Jesus is saying this to Peter. He's saying, look, life going forward is going to be different. Verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. If we stopped right there without this parenthetical insert, we would just assume natural progression of life. You get old. When you're younger, you're able to do more things. When you're older, now somebody else. They say when you come into the world, they, you need your diapers changed. And when you leave the world, your diapers are being changed as well. <laughs> I saw heads go, uh-uh, ain't nobody changing my diaper. But we have verse 19. John pens in here. He says, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. Jesus tells Peter here, he says, look, Peter, the freedom you once enjoyed uh, of trusting yourself, being confident in yourself, that's going to be abandoned now. All that is done, that your life is no longer your own. You're to live your life for me. And ultimately, he tells him, this is going to lead to your death. I want you to think about that. Imagine Christ inviting you unto himself to come and follow him. And he says, by the way, you're going to die for this. Who's ready to sign up? One person. Yes, we got one person to raise their hand. Say, yes, I'm ready. Most of us would go, I don't think I want to sign up for that. John writes, but Jesus says it's all about his upcoming crucifixion. He will die just like his Lord died. When Jesus says this, he says, Peter, follow me. You know what Jesus told him the first time he saw him when he was fishing? He said, follow me. But guess what? Peter failed. And you know why he failed? Because he's following himself and not the Lord. And Jesus reaffirms his call to him and says, follow me. It is the clearest call of the Christian life. If you're here today and it's the first time, you're going to hear of the glorious news of Jesus, the one who would step in our place to take our penalty for our sin. 
to die in our place so that we could be forgiven of our sins. Glorious news. But it does not mean, the Scriptures does not say that life will become peachy and perfect after that. Life does not become radically easier after becoming a Christian. As a matter of fact, life typically gets radically more difficult. Because when you're not a believer, you're going with the flow. You're doing as the world does. But as a believer, now you're going upstream. And things become a lot more difficult. Some of you are like, hey, I invited somebody here today, Pastor. You're not making this very welcoming. Why would anybody come to Christ if it's so hard? Why would anybody follow Jesus if he says, lay down your life and follow me? How does that make sense? You know, Jesus in John chapter 16, he said some difficult things. He was telling the people they had to partake of his body and his blood. And they were like, yes, yes, we're not going to deal with this. In John chapter 6, verse 66, John 666, we read, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And guess who speaks? Peter. And Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Do you know that this life will come to an end? We only have so many days appointed by the Lord. And then what? And then what takes place? Peter says, Lord, you alone have the words for eternal life. Jesus alone has these words. There's not many roads that lead to heaven. There's one. Jesus alone is the way to eternal life. Jesus alone is the giver of eternal life. Jesus, to whom else shall you go? I ask you this morning the same question. To whom else shall you go? If you were drug in here this morning, someone said, just come with me. They bribed you. Maybe they're going to take you to lunch or something. Maybe some of you are put up some lunch. And you go, you know what? I heard about this Jesus, but there's got to be other ways. Jesus said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, exclusively through him. He is the only one to lay down his life in your place. Look, you might come in here this morning and go, Pastor, you don't know me. Don't judge me. I'm a good person. Well, can we test that? Let's test it. Um, let me ask you this. Have you ever told a lie? Nobody answers me. One person. <laughs> yeah, you have. How many lies have you told? Yeah. What do you call somebody who even tells one lie? Liar. Have you ever stolen anything in your life, no matter the value of it? Have you ever stolen something? Maybe taken a paper clip from work or cheated on your taxes or something else. You ever stolen anything? What do you call somebody that steals something? Thief. So far it's not going too good. Have you ever used the name of God in a way that doesn't bring him glory? Like, oh my G-O-D. Or maybe even the name of his son is a curse word. That's called blasphemy. God doesn't take that lightly. Or how about this? Jesus said if you just look at another person and you lust after them, you've committed adultery in your heart. You ever done that? So by your own admission, don't get mad at me, don't throw rocks at me. But by your own admission, answering these questions, you're a lying, thieving, blaspheming, adulterer of hearts. 
Christ to live, not to die. Good work. But just by those four, if you were to stand before a holy God, would you be innocent or guilty? Would you be deserving of heaven or hell? Does that concern you? Because it concerned the Father enough that he would send his only son to die in your place so that you don't get what you rightly deserve. Instead of getting hell that you and I rightly deserve, we can get heaven. But the Bible says you must trust in what Christ has done for you, that he paid the penalty on the cross for you. It says you must receive that by repenting, turning, turning from your lifestyle, turning from the way you're living, and turning to Christ, trusting in him, no longer being confident in yourself that you can do anything, being confident in Christ that he's done everything. So repent and believe. Now before I plead with you to make that decision to come to Christ, I must warn you as Jesus warned Peter. He warned him about the cost of discipleship. That there's a cost. That there's a cost in following Christ. What does it mean? In Luke chapter 9, we read this. In Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, Jesus said to everyone there, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. He said, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus is making it clear that following him, when he tells Peter, Peter, follow me, that it can't be a half-hearted commitment. It can't be like, I have some of Jesus, and I got some of this, and I got some of that, and I'm covering my bases. You're either all in or you're not. He's saying you've got to be all in. Three times Jesus asked Peter to affirm his love for him. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? You know, in John chapter 14, Jesus said three times that if you love him, you'll obey his commands. Three times he said that. So let's get it clear. While it's not about our performance that saves us, genuine salvation should produce good fruit. The evidence of salvation. Jesus told Peter, follow me. And guess what? Peter, the one who suffered with foot and mouth disease, he faithfully followed Christ. And he remained obedient to the Lord's commission the rest of his life, spending the last three decades of his life serving the Lord and anticipating his own upcoming death, knowing that I will die for this faith, laying his own life down. He obeyed Christ to shepherd God's people. He not only did it himself, but he told others to do it as well. He wrote 1 Peter and 2 Peter, but in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you as fellow elders and witnesses of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Guess what Peter learned? If I just obey the Lord, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep, then he will be a faithful steward of what God's given him. God has called him to go and to serve. How does he overcome his failure? By living a fruitful life through the power of the Spirit. This is Peter. Peter did not dwell on his failure. 
he repented and he fixed his eyes on Jesus. He resolved to be all in. The question is, are you all in? Or do you know something about Jesus? You know, the Bible says the demons believe and they tremble. They don't have a saving faith. Are you all in? Have you determined to follow Christ no matter what the cost? You know, Peter's devotion was fueled by Christ's faithfulness. That even when he was faithless, Christ was faithful. And you know, the same Jesus that was faithful to Peter is also faithful to you. That when you fall and you stumble and you mess up, he's still there to offer forgiveness, to pick you back up. Who does that except Christ? The world will cast you aside. You've blown it too many times. You're not worthy of forgiveness. But Christ offers you that forgiveness. Peter, fueled by that faithfulness of Christ. His obedience was empowered by the Holy Spirit. His aim was the glory of God. And the question is this. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Now I'll say this, if you're here today and you have never responded to Christ, who would beckon you to come unto him, to receive him as Lord and Savior, to receive his forgiveness, that he is the one that gives eternal life to all mankind, that today would be the day of your salvation, that today you would turn to Christ, today you would submit yourself to his lordship over your life, that you would say, my life is no longer my own, it's his, that I have failed, but I'm turning to the one who is faithful. Would you do that today? Christ pleads with you to come to him, to call out to him, to submit to him. Do you love Jesus? Church, to look at how to overcome failure is to fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on his perfection. Don't fix it on your performance. Fix it on Christ's performance. Let's pray together. Father, in this place this morning, no doubt there are many on the wrong road. A road that is wide, but a road that leads to destruction. Father, we pray that you would draw them to yourself. That they would respond in faith and repentance that they would turn from themselves and turn to Christ. That for those who maybe even wandered in this place today, not knowing why am I even here, that they would know right now why they are here. Because today is the day of salvation. That tomorrow is promised to no one. That the words of Christ would pierce their hearts. That they would respond to him crying out to them, follow Father, for those of us in this room who have experienced failure, failure that continues to come up in our minds that we continue to dwell on, Father, help us to dwell on Christ, to dwell on His faithfulness, to experience the restoration that comes only through Christ, that our confidence would be in Christ alone, for He is faithful. He will hold us fast. We praise You for this great truth. We pray these things in the wonderful name of Jesus.